Hi everybody, you're listening to The Woke Podcast with Fox and Maya. Thanks for supporting the show. This is a show with adult content, so if you're not of legal age where you live, then turn off now. This podcast is about rope bondage. Rope bondage is edge play with inherent risk. We strongly recommend you get proper training and listen to our episode zero on safety and consent in rope before attempting it. Find it at the top of our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. Fox is a rigger and Maya is a bottom. We are long-term rope partners who live in Bangkok, Thailand. We love to share our passion for rope with the wider community. Today's episode is sponsored by you, our lovely listeners. Thank you so much for our patrons who make this podcast possible by supporting some of the costs. If you'd like to help us make more Rope Podcast episodes, please go to ropepodcast.com and visit our Patreon. Tiffereth's introduction to rope bondage came in 2011 in the form of a surprisingly enjoyable suspended futamomo. Since then, she's drawn on her dual background in high-performance athletics and figurative arts to push herself physically and aesthetically on both ends of the rope. Known for her dynamic style of sadism, performative rope and creative approach to harness construction, she loves conveying her passion through engaging hands-on methods of instruction. She's the co-owner of Birdhouse, an events and photography studio where she teaches and performs locally in Toronto. Tifreth is a regular on the global shibari scene with credits including Prague Shibari Festival, Bondage Expo Dallas, Yorix, Helsinki Shibari, Sydney's Killer Babes of Kinbaku, ShibariCon, as well as weekend workshops and performances all over the globe. She is most often found wherever the weird stuff is, and today she's with us. Hi Tifereth and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. To get us started, can you tell us how you got interested in rope bondage in the first place? Uh, yeah, so uh, I uh, discovered Shibari when I unknowingly agreed to bartend the 2011 MBE meet and greet topless in exchange for cash under the table to buy paint for my undergraduate art thesis. <laughs> and while I was working the event, uh, a rigger there asked if I wanted to get tied up. And I said that I didn't really know what that meant, but that I was really good at being upside down, if that helped. <laughs> and so my first rope experience, uh, experience started off with a uh, single point Fudo. And then I dated that person for five years. <laughs> uh, how come you were really good at being upside down? I don't know. Uh, honestly, I, um, I've always loved roller coasters. I was always that kid on the playground doing things that made everybody really nervous. Um, I was in gymnastics for a very long time and, uh, it seems like when other people are in, you know, vomit inducing situations, I'm having a, a grand old time. So I think, I think there's just something in me that loves being turned upside down and spun at high speeds. Wish I could give a better answer. I, I can see how that would help with rope for sure. And from that first photo, how did you progress, I guess, with rope? So, um, so from there, I, I was really working with this person that I, that I was dating, uh, for, for many years, mainly, mainly as a bottom, but they were already on the North American circuit teaching and performing. And then at some point I started self-tying because we were long distance and I was craving more rope in my life than I was getting. 
And that kind of evolved into me occasionally tying my friends up in like very unstructured ways. Mm-hmm. And then actually, while I was preparing for this podcast, I came across the, a picture of the first ever TK I ever tied. It's from February 17th, 2013. Mm-hmm. It was an incorrectly remembered Osaka two rope TK and the stem is about four inches off center, but I remember being so proud. Oh, that's um, sweet. Yeah. Um, and I decided to keep learning to tie because my partner and I were performing more and more regularly and I had some very strong ideas on choreography that I wasn't really able to communicate effectively Um, and so we would just come to these impasses where I'd be like, no, if you just lift this while you're simultaneously simultaneously pushing this through and I do a sit-up, it should fall into this and it'll be really cool and that wasn't really working so I figured if I learned to tie the way that I wanted to be tied, then maybe I could teach the people to tie me the way I wanted to be tied. And that evolved into inventing ties I wanted to be tied in. And then suddenly I found myself teaching and tying people other than my partner. Um, and that was kind of that mm. for, for how I got into rope. And then... You know, from there, I was kind of stumbling around mainly the U.S., um, going from conference to conference uh, before I had a really big change. Uh, I got banned from entering the United States. Whoa. So I'm a sex worker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a sex worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and the U.S. is the only country in the world that bars entry to sex workers on moral grounds, wow. regardless of the legality of the work in your country of origin. So if you have ever engaged in sex work, you are not welcome to enter the United States. And they, they actively hunt people down on social media. Wow. Most people don't. Um, yeah. So I had, a, I had um, a Nexus card and everything when they bounced me. I was actually on my way to Narex. When uh, they stopped me at the border, uh, interrogated me for about 11 hours, and uh, turned me away. And it's functionally a lifetime ban. So I remember leaving the airport, getting into an Uber, exhausted at this point, and thinking, oh my god, this life that I have curated for myself, all my friends, everything that I care about has just been you know, pulled out from underneath me, but I was friends with one person who I knew was Europe based Hedwig, uh, another cool human that should absolutely do this. Uh, and I texted her something along the lines of, Hey, I just got banned from the U S is there anything cool happening in Europe? Mm-hmm. Um, and Eurex happened to have put out a call for presenters the day before. So quite the shock, but you managed to make lemonade out of those lemons. Yeah. And that kind of, I mean, my rope journey, if you want to call it a rope journey, has, you know, really been formed by that experience and formed by basically being shunted off of North American soil and forced to, um, you know, expand horizons that otherwise would not have been expanded into. So Mm. I've been very fortunate for the last, you know, since 2016, I've been exposed to a lot of things that I would not have been able to exposed to had a lot of cool opportunities um and all because of uh needing paint money and agreeing to get my 
boobs out in a dungeon for 50 bucks. <laughs> and uh, talking of dungeon, um, I know in your, in your bio you talk about being sadistic. Does rope have a connection to BDSM for you? Because it seems like you've fell into it in a different, um, a different way. Um, so I know a lot of people come into rope through finding a passion for BDSM. I was dabbling at the time that I um, found my way into the rope scene. That's kind of how I had the the dungeon bartending hookup. But um, I won't say that I, I wouldn't say that I was active in the scene. I just kind of had attended a couple of parties here and there. Was you know tangentially aware that it existed. Um, so. BDSM for me has never, I think, really been the driving force for why I fell in love with rope. It's something that I, I, I appreciate works for others and is something that, you know, I kind of have had, you know, flirtations with over the years, but, but it's, it's not the driving force for me. Mm-hmm. So, so talk to us about now. How how is rope important to you now? What's the the landscape of rope for you now? I'd say so because because I don't currently have like that, and and haven't really had it for for a very long time. That kind of you know that BDSM connection to the scene. Um, you know, for me, it's it's very much been just like this weird little all encompassing passion. Um, you know, it's been very fluid. Um, my relationship to rope has definitely changed over the last little while. Um, in particular, the last, the last two years, essentially entirely away from it as a result of panda, of the pandemic and the lockdowns. I tied twice in two years. You know, my, my, my husband is endlessly supportive, but very much not a rope bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, bless him. He will. Very occasionally, if I'm like, I will put on Star Trek Voyager and all you have to do is sit there and just please let me see if what's in my head translates to a human body. I can sometimes, you know, get that. But, um, you know, beyond that, it was pretty much two years of total rope isolation. And it made me realize just how much rope is important to me um, because I'm definitely a better, happier more creative person when I'm tying regularly. It's my outlet and, uh, um, and I need it. Um, I also somewhat recently, so I, I was sort of like, Oh, you know, I'll be fine if I just sort of sit here in Toronto from here on out having my, you know, little rope dates here and there. I don't need much. Um, but recently it's funny about every third tie that I see on my Instagram feed is Tenchi is Tenchi, mm. um, which is a tie that I invented back in 2016. Yeah, it seems um, immensely popular at the moment. Yeah, and so seeing something that was, you know, the product of a weird night in with my model at the time, kind of hit the global rope scene. Also, really made me want to come back to rope because it made me realize that a lot of what I've been struggling with, with with my imposter syndrome was maybe not as much of a thing as I had built it up to be in my head. Um, and you know, when every third photo you see on your Instagram feed is a thing you made that, you know, you're really proud of it. 
it kind of makes you want to re-engage with that thing. Yeah, it's a, a giant validation of your creativity and your skills. And and beyond that, it's it's a sense of being valued that I think I was missing a little mm -hmm. bit before. I was starting to feel like a rope dispenser and being able to see something that I've put, you know, so much passion and time and care into be wholeheartedly adopted made me want to come back. Hmm. Um, and then also I, I have very dear friends who are basically endlessly prodding me to get over my, my own anxiety at Rokunawa in Basel, Joan in Prague, my models in Toronto, Punk Monk and Jazz um, have all been so encouraging over the years. And so that's, that's really, really brought me back to it. Um, let me see what else. Oh, I also, I opened a venue. <laughs> yeah. So that also is uh, a big part of what is making rope feel important to me right now. I, I opened my own space and it's terrifying and wonderful. Um, it's not exclusively a rope studio. It's more of like a general event space and photography space, but being able to teach regularly and perform there at my own pace, as opposed to the brutal grind that is being on, you know, six, eight week long tours. Um, again, it's that little reminder of, Hey, you love this. You put it down because you were tired, not because you were done with it. Mm. That kind of thing. Hey guys, this is Fox coming in for a short break. Listeners like you make this podcast possible. We want to continue making this podcast for you for a long time. And to do that, we need your support. Please go to ropepodcast.com to buy rope video lessons from experts so we get a small commission on your purchase at no extra cost to you. In addition, a really great way to help us is donating on Patreon. A one-time amount or a monthly pledge that can be as little as the cost of your morning coffee makes a big difference to us. And you will gain cool perks like behind-the-scenes photos and the ability to vote on future podcast topics. Go support us on ropepodcast.com because you love rope too. So you've you've sort of been through all the different angles with rope bondage. You've been a bottom, you've been self-tying, you've been topping people, and now you're involved in running a venue. So you've had kind of came yeah. at it from all the angles over time, right? And as a photographer. Yeah. And, and yeah, the whole uh, producing photography and video and performances. So very, very wide breadth of engagement with rope, right? I would say that, yeah. Um, I, I, I tend to come back to the same things over and over again that yeah. I love because I'm a, an obsessive little weirdo. But, um, you know, I've had a, a, a finger in many pies. <laughs> mm. Do you still bottom for rope nowadays or at least did you before the pandemic hit? Very, very rarely, and mainly because, um, so I would say I was in a cohort of bottoms that all kind of, we got, we all kind of got our start around about a decade ago, and it was during a time in the North American rope scene where there was this flood of images and little video clips and stuff that we were, that we were seeing online of stuff happening in Japan with no information informing that photo or that little video clip of how, you know, how long that person was actually in that tie, mm. um, how they got into it, how they got out of it, you know, what was actually going on in the back that you couldn't see. And so it kind of felt like being in the wild west in that 
you know, it was this amazing, super experimental time for North American rope. But the consequences of that was that myself and a lot of the other models I know all have laundry lists of injuries. Mm. Um, more so than, you know, some of the folks that I, that I know today. Um, and so as a consequence of that, you know, I've got a bunch of herniated discs that are from rope. Mm. I have, um, uh, some like long-term nerve damage also from rope. Uh, um, and then from rigging, um, I have arthritis in my, in my thumbs. I have problems with my hands and my forearms. Um, rope has definitely taken a toll on my body. And so bottoming to anything for me these days is a bit of a luxury because I have to ask myself, okay, you know, how easy do I want it to be to get out of bed tomorrow morning? Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, yeah. So, so that leads on to um, another question, which is what challenges have you faced in rope? So, so you've just described very well one of the big ones. What, what other challenges have you faced? So I thought a lot about this um, because I want, I want to be honest. Um, and uh, um, there's kind of two that I really identified as being ones that have, have had major impact on 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 me in the scene. And the first one being that as a North American woman, um, less so recently now that I think more people know I exist, but in the earlier days of kind of getting out there, especially on the other side of the pond, um, I experienced a lot of my worth and my ideas being dismissed in the broader Shabari scene, getting told things you know, verbatim, uh, you're surprisingly good for a woman. Mm. Um, I had somebody come up on stage when I was teaching Tenshi, which is again, a tie that I invented to tell me that I was doing it wrong. Wow. Um, and I, yeah. Um, and then pushed aside and corrected, which was hilarious, um, in front of, you know, a crowd of a good couple of hundred people. Uh, it was a very large scale event. Um, I've also, you know, just experienced those little, those little moments where you're made to feel less than by, uh, all the big cishet dude riggers in the group of riggers who are all going out for dinner and are very clearly excluding specifically you. Mm. Um, and you know, I'm already someone who really struggles with imposter syndrome. And so that, that was, that's been hard. Um, I've gotten better at handling it over the years, I think. Um, I always try whenever someone does something like that to, um, like I'm, I'm, I know not to argue with them. It doesn't change anybody, anybody's mind when you argue with them. I refocus on the model of the person who, who's treating me like this. Um, and I aim what I have to say at them because I know it's absolutely pointless to tell the guy who's already dismissed me the information that I'm, I'm there to share. But his his model, are, they're usually the ones that pipe up and say, you know, and this happened with the with the guy on stage, uh, you know, actually her her way feels right, or you know, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure she's just good, not good for a woman, <laughs> um, you know, um, and you know, the guy may not want to listen to me, but in my experience, at least they back down a little when their own model sides with me. 
Um, and that's been happening less and less, which is, which is good. There's a few places that I just won't go now. Um, a few people that I won't work with, um, you know, a few cities that I avoid entirely because, um, I'm too old and crusty and burned out to, you know, fight the good fight with a bunch of people like that anymore. Um, and you know, every now and again, if one of them shows up in my class, well, they're lost. Mm. And Um, you said there were two challenges. Yeah. So the, the other major challenge that I've faced, which is I think going to be really uncomfortable for people to talk about is that, um, I've been in this scene for 11 years and, I've so many people that I've counted as, you know, close friends and treasured acquaintances have been outed and removed from the scene for serially violating people's consent. And at one point I sat down and counted and it was about one close personal friend or somebody that I would see, you know, at least a few times a year and counted among, you know, the people that I look forward to seeing about every four to six months, which is a shocking rate. That is a and yeah. And some of these people have left physical marks on my body. And I have to be reminded every time I look at the scars or go to the dentist, um, or feel, you know, a lingering numb spot on the back of my calf that hasn't gone away for seven years that, you know, no, that wasn't just an isolated slip up, you know, no, that wasn't just a communication mistake. Um, you know, that was, there was a pattern, that was a pattern of behaviors. I, that was a pattern of behaviors, and you know, I'm now part of that. Mm. And you know, one of these people—not one of the ones that's injured me, but one of these people who I, I really thought of as a mentor—is actually on my marriage certificate. He was the witness at my wedding, mm. um, and that's forever. That man's name is forever on my marriage certificate, and. Mm. After that big one, um, that kind of broke me. So that was a really huge hurdle for me to get over. And at the same time, it was also a huge hurdle for me with my own journey because I saw so many of these people when they started down that path in retrospect. And it made me begin to think that this was kind of some inevitable consequence of gaining any degree of fame or power or position of privilege in the scene. And I struggled with anxiety over whether I would be the next one to slip up. Um, And I I really pulled away from the scene as a result. I tied with fewer and fewer and fewer people until I was only tying with people that I 100% you know, knew and trusted. Um, and I stopped making friends with new people in the scene, you know, and kind of held people at arm's length so that I wouldn't have to be disappointed mm. in the future. And that's, that's very hard when you're trying to build community because, you know, community doesn't come from holding each other at arm's length because you're terrified of, you know, who the next big bad is going to be. But that's, that's kind of how it was for a while. Mm. Um, and it's kind of why I pulled back. It's why, I'm not active on FetLife anymore because I just, you know, couldn't handle moderating some of the consent focus groups that I was part of because, uh, you know, my co-moderators are on that list of people. Hmm. So, yeah, it's difficult. Um, and it's, it's something that I definitely find 
to be a challenge even today. And and that um, environment from the outside doesn't look like it um, is going to nurture new uh, rope educators because it's a hard scene to come into because there's a, there's a the potential for slip up as you say. So what made you decide to continue with that uh, rope education and and um, develop yourself in that area? Well. Did I, why did I keep teaching? Um, mm. Oh, I think, I mean, I started teaching because I saw a gap um, in the available information. Um, the very first class that I ever taught was a bottom class. Uh, at the time, the only available information on bottoming was Clover's bottoming was Clover's bottoming guide and then her classes that she was running which are excellent but they were at the time very 101 mainly focused on safety and you know remembering the key and hydrate which is absolutely essential but doesn't really um, give you much to go on if you're a little bit further on in your bottoming career than that mm-hmm. uh, um so I had come into the scene a pretty recently retired athlete and, you know, I had people asking me how I was tolerating certain things or how I was making my body do certain things. So I created a class that was aimed at giving specific information on how to sustain tough rope with greater ease, how to train your body for rope. And I included um, an hour long demo teaching while I was in the air talking wow. through how it was managing body and space, which has since been developed. Uh, I co-taught with Fuoco for a while. Her programming is absolutely fantastic on bottoming, some of the, some of the best in the world. But that's how I got my start, was seeing a hole that needed to be filled in bottoming education. And the reason why I keep teaching, despite you know all of these things that I've been discussing, is that I still see holes in bottoming. And, and, and not just in bottoming education. Um, you know, I see these gaps when it comes to thinking about the body in three-dimensional space. I see these gaps in how do you teach people to be inventive? How do you teach people to be creative? Not teach them creative ties or teach them interesting ties you've invented. How do you teach them how to think? Um, and the same for performing. I'm, I'm very passionate about performance. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's, it's, it is my true love when it comes to rope. And I can bang on for hours about how to be a better performer because I feel like that's a gap. You know, not a lot of people talk about how do you make a performance? Um, and so I keep teaching even though it makes me anxious because um, I want to be able to go to a show and be wowed. I want to be able to walk in to a community rope space and see every single person tying something so radically different from every other person that it is unidentifiable as, you know, a monolithic scene. I am so tired of walking into, you know, a city and being like, ah, ah, yes. Akana city. Ah, yes. And here we have the Naka city. You know, I, I am a little chaos muppet. 
and I want to, you know, cultivate chaos. And, uh, and so I, I, I keep teaching because I guess, yeah, I'm selfish. <laughs> I want people to do what I like. <laughs> Dear listeners, we were having such a good time talking with Tifereth that we did not want to cut it short. And so you can find the rest of our conversation with Tifereth in our next episode of the Rope Podcast. So that's all from us at the Rope Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And also come friend us on our FetLife page, Rope Podcast. Follow us on Instagram, where our name is also Rope Podcast. If you have a question related to rope, we'd love to answer it in one of our future episodes. Drop us a message on FetLife or Instagram. If you like this podcast and would enjoy more episodes, find all the ways to support us on our website, ropepodcast.com. In particular, please consider supporting us directly on our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. And have fun tying. <laughs>